Hello and welcome to another episode of the 100k Freelancer Club podcast. Today I'm speaking to a really cool guest who is a 2D motion designer, a freelance 2D motion designer and they absolutely killed it making over $200,000 in one year in motion design. Now this guy has worked for the big boy of clients. We're talking Google, Facebook, McDonald's, Adobe, Amex. He has got a monster client list, super success in the freelance world. And he's going to be on the podcast today talking with me, explaining to me how he did it and just going over some cool stories of the freelance lifestyle. So stay tuned and get some of his super cool tips and tricks to get you yourself in that very position. But if you're listening to this podcast, please subscribe if you're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google, wherever you listen to your podcast, subscribe. It really helps us out. Um, and then also, if you want, and only if you want, head over to 100kfreelanceclub.com and sign up for all of our free additional content. Or if you fancy it and you want to take your career to the next level, sign up for one of our uh, pro courses and packages. Um, but without further ado, it's my pleasure to introduce Austin Saylor to the podcast. And yeah, let's get straight in. Austin, thank you very much for joining me uh, on today's episode of the 100K Freelancer Club podcast. How are you doing today? I am doing fantastic. Um, excited to be on your show. Yeah, well, thanks for coming. I've been looking um, on your portfolio today, going through all the works you've been doing. And I've got to say, you've got quite a rap sheet. You've got some pretty big clients uh, on that portfolio list. Thanks. It's a... Uh... Yeah, I've been it's I've been freelancing for like seven or eight years now, and have had a lot of fun working with cool people. Yeah, man, that's the, that's what it's all about, right? Working on the projects that you love, as and when, and yeah, living that freelance lifestyle. So, I got a question for you to kind of get the ball rolling. And looking at your portfolio, you've got some fantastic stuff on there. One, I just want to say that you are an amazing two D motion designer. Um, I've been looking at your stuff today. I've been looking at your Instagram uh, and your LinkedIn and all the projects you've been posting. So you've been doing some great work and there's no wonder there that you're at the top of your game uh, in the freelance world. Thank you. But um, who, who do you prefer working with? Is it the big clients like Facebook or is it smaller um, sort of startups and businesses? I honestly enjoy kind of being able to have the variety of clients. And so working with a big Facebook or a Honda or whatever, um, those can be a fun, different kind of challenge where I'm working with a team and that's, uh, it's fun to work with a team and like collaborate and, you know, work together on hitting a, a hard deadline, uh, and a big project. But I also love doing solo projects where I get to be a little bit more in control of the creative and talking more directly with the client. So it's, it's cool. I, that's one thing I love about freelance is being able to, have quite a range of kinds of projects and people that I'm working with. So I, I personally don't even have a strong preference. It's more about, am I working with cool people? Um, if the budget's right, cool people, then I'm happy. Yeah. Yeah. And does it, so the working with cool people is when you work with a big company like Facebook, can it get a little bit restrictive? Cause I'm assuming that when you go to smaller companies there, because they have, 
less people inside the the company, less of a hierarchy. They can just go, here's the idea, run with it, and you get full creative freedom. But if a bigger client approaches you, are there you know multiple managers that you have to report to? Do you have to get each idea approved, each you know five seconds of the video approved? Let's just say, how does it work? Um, sometimes it's actually been the flip, which is interesting. So with uh, the bigger one of the bigger Facebook projects I worked on, it was a lot more like here's some phrases that we want animated and I got to do lettering animation and it was like, we love your style, like go crazy. And they actually encouraged me to push even further and just like think of some weird stuff to do with this. And I've been on some smaller projects where, and I think it makes sense where if it's a small client and they're spending most of their budget on a project, like a lot of their marketing budget for the month on a project, they want it to be perfect. And in their mind, they don't know what that is yet because they've never worked with a motion designer before. And so sometimes the smaller clients can have, it, it can be even more tricky to, you know, have full creative freedom because they're worried that they're not going to get exactly what they think they need, but they're not sure yet. And it's a, a lot of unsureness. But then sometimes with these bigger clients, it's such a small fraction of their budget. Even if it's a big budget for me personally, I'm getting paid well. They're like, yeah, yeah, it's no problem. Just like have fun with that. Uh, and it's, it's not always that way, but it's, it, that has been the case sometimes with, uh, the big clients versus small clients for me. Yeah. I guess the, the smaller clients have that like fear of failure when they're putting like a good percentage of the company's working capital into this yeah. project. They go into like micromanager mode where they're like, okay, this has to work. This has to work. I mean, I get it a lot in the marketing field as well. When you work with like bigger and small clients with a lot of the work that you do nowadays in marketing, it takes a bit of time for the ad platforms to actually, you know, find the right audiences to start performing, like mm -hmm. getting the results that you want. And during like when you're working with a smaller client, that first week, is is quite a daunting sort of like stage for them because they're like okay like you know every penny counts you know this, mm -hmm. this isn't the result that we want and you just have to like you have to like calm the client down like no don't worry we're on track here we are and then two weeks later you're flying but it's just that yeah that first week is always the most difficult so i can imagine how yeah it feels for you being uh in in that smaller client and them sort of trying to you know, micromanage and make sure the project's actually perfect, which is hard because, like you said, they don't even know what perfect is. They just want to make sure that they're going to get a good return on yeah. that investment, right? So, and that just takes a lot of good communication and m making them feel like you're taking care of them when you can over communicate and come super prepared for a meeting and show that you have a roadmap for success. Then they're more likely to trust you and believe like, okay, Austin's got this, this is going to get taken care of versus if you're like, you, you're like, and I've done this before in my head, like, okay, yeah, the process is going, but if I'm not communicating all of those steps to the client, then they're like, what's happening? Like, mm -hmm. I don't know. And so over communicating to me has been way better than sitting back and just like, oh yeah, I'll deliver on Friday. And it's Tuesday and they're like freaking out. Did he leave with the money? In fact, I had a client <laughs> tell me they were freaking out with, at me, I guess. And not freaking out. It just, just like expressing concern. And I was like, oh no, we're good. Like I told you I was going to deliver on Friday. And they were like, okay, well, we've just had a, an experience in the past with a, a freelancer who 
we paid half up front and they just never did anything and we lost money. And I was like, Oh, that's interesting. I should maybe ask that in a, you know, initial meeting with a client. Like, have you ever worked with freelancers before? Are there concerns that you have bringing somebody in from the outside? Um, so I've, I'm incorporating that into my like onboarding with small clients. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point actually, because I've had clients as well that have been stung in the past by freelancers, even myself, um, like hiring freelancers. There's, there's always that like 10, 20% of freelancers out there that either a, they can't do what they say they can do or B, they just don't do it. So yep. yeah, it's interesting that you've like incorporated that into, uh, into your, like, um, your sign up process how how do you yeah. think that affects the like the relationship long term like how do you even iron out those like trust issues um i mean the only way to to start with trust is to is the best way like building trust from the beginning which is like doing your research on them letting them know that you care about their project about their company um and demonstrating that you can get the job done but if you do start to lose trust, there's the like, let's have a conversation. I feel like there's some trust that's been lost. Um, I want to do what I can to rebuild that. And here's how I'm going to do that. And just being upfront about it, I think is the best way to kind of not just, I think my natural tendency is to want to just like, well, I'll just over deliver on the next deliverable, but it's actually better to just uh, confront it upfront and address it head on and talk about it in the open rather than hope that you can pull it together in the end yeah oh yeah exactly a, a good friend of mine steve who i've been working with for ages told me this quote maybe like 10 years ago that i've always tried to stick by is um under promise and over deliver yep and i think that pretty much sums up like freelancing in general in in that trustworthiness because i think Honestly, I think as long as you can do what you say you can do and you do it on time, you're going to be successful in the world of freelancing because yeah. there are so many people out there that claim to do, you know, these magnificent things, have these amazing skills. And then, like we said, either just don't do it or just don't do it to the way that they've described it. And, you know, in my experience, all businesses care about are results. That trust, obviously, and the, the communication there, but they care about the results. And if you can deliver the results that you say you're going to get, you're going to get that amazing review. You're going to get those word of mouth referrals, and then you're just going to begin to snowball as mm-hmm. uh, as a freelancer. And then that brings me over onto um, uh, another point, which uh, I've seen recently. Um, your project 200k. Uh, and this, I believe, is uh, so. In 2021, you made over $200,000 as a freelancer, mm-hmm. um, and this is sort of your way of sharing and showing people that journey of how they can get to that end goal as well. Uh, so, do you want to jump in and, and tell me a little bit about what that is and how that works? Yeah. So, in 2020, I think I was hitting around like year five or six of my freelance, and I kept hitting a ceiling of income. And I couldn't quite seem to break a hundred K I like hit 80, I hit 90 I hit a hundred, went back down to 80. And so I personally was like, just frustrated. I'm like, I feel like I have more potential here, but I was also teaching an animation course and running a membership. So I'm, I'm like half, um, creative brain, half entrepreneurial brain. So freelance was really interesting to me cause I could go out and be my own boss. 
Um, but I could also do things other than freelance. I could teach, I could build a course, I could do all these things, but I couldn't get traction with any of those things. Each piece, everything I added, I thought it would help income, like increase my income, but really it was just stretching me thin. And so I realized like I need to focus on one thing. And I think something that entrepreneurs do a lot is they, uh, figure out a way to make money and then they get excited about trying to figure out a new way and they don't do the thing that they know how to make money with. <laughs> it's like a really strange, um, I, I guess it comes from being creative, like wanting to try something new. And so I figured out how to make money with freelance and I was trying to make money with other things. And so I decided I know how to do it with, with freelance. I bet you if I quit doing all of these courses and a membership that I could double my income and then, and so I decided, yeah, it was actually kind of a tricky decision because I'd been building up my course side of the business for three years. And I thought that was the path I was going to take and to just cut it off completely was, uh, difficult, but I was excited because I really believed that if I had this much focus and clarity that I could, uh, achieve the goals that I wanted to achieve. And so I set out to make 200,000 that was going to double my income and, because I can't help but like want to talk about what I'm doing. I just gave it a project name. So I called it project 200 K uh, and decided to share everything, like all of my numbers, what I was trying, what was working, what wasn't working all throughout the year. And uh, the, the funniest thing to me, funny, haha, is January, 2021, I made $0 and I was like, okay, strong start <laughs> trying to make 200 K, uh, my worst month ever. And, uh, but I put, I published my blog post about it and I was like, I'm not worried because I'm doing the legwork. I'm doing the networking. I'm doing the outreach to, uh, bring the clients in. And, um, I, I have faith that my strategy is going to work over time. And I've talked to other people who have said, yeah, I've made 200,000 but a lot of it came in the third quarter. So like if you're, if it's starting off slow, that's okay. You can pick things up later. And so I just stuck with it and ended up having a really good month, like two or three months later made the most money, maybe the most money I've ever made in a month. It was 36 or 38,000 in one month. And uh, I was like, all right, I'm, I'm figuring cooking. some things out. This is exciting. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, so I basically stayed once I, once I got busy, I stayed busy throughout the year and ended up making about 206,000 for the year, oh, nice. uh, about mid December. Yeah. And how do you sort of maintain that level of income? Because you see with a lot of freelancers, they have a period, so they might have one quarter, which is really high earning for them. And then the next quarter they finish the projects and they're looking for the next, so they have a dip and then it goes up and down and up and down. Are you at the moment, are you still on that sort of like mountain wave or have you managed to sort of stabilize your income as a freelancer? This year has been different for me because I have actually done that thing again where I'm switching into coaching. And so it's been a big transition year. So I've turned down a bunch of freelance work. And so I, I don't know how to speak to the, to my freelance this year specifically because I've been transitioning and turning down work. So it doesn't, I'm not tracking it the same way. Um, I'm focusing more on my students' results and uh, like getting them to the point where they're making more money with freelance. But yeah. uh, I will say that the the most common freelance issue that I see, uh, even in myself, I'm not like a perfect uh, robot at this, but when you get busy with work, you stop doing outreach. 
And I think that's the most common problem that I see with freelancers. And the thing that helped me was not even to be perfect at the outreach while I was busy, but being cognizant of it and going, oh, I'm going to spend the first hour of the morning doing outreach, connecting with people, and then get into the work rather than just being like heads down, always working on the freelance work. I have to, you have to be like so, uh, sowing those seeds so that you can have the harvest after your project is done because there's so many things so many times people get that work they don't do outreach and then it dips because no one knows they're available no one knows they're out there and then they go, go into panic mode like oh, i gotta post on social media i gotta like send all these emails and it's a frantic up and down like you forget then you go crazy on it then you forget and you go crazy on it and so leveling yeah. that out and sending being consistent about outreach and networking all the time, um, even just small things, just sending a, a simple email or a DM before you get started on your work can make a big difference. Oh, definitely. I mean, when you're busy, it takes so much discipline to be able to do that. Like you wake up in the morning, you've got five clients on the go, you know, you've got a hell of a day ahead of you. You open the laptop, there's already emails coming in about this needs to be fixed. And you know, this is happening on the project and you've said to yourself that you're going to try and do some outreach, but there's all these fires that you need to put out and all these deadlines that you need to meet. So you're like, oh, I'll do it tomorrow. And then tomorrow comes and it's the same old thing. And, you know, like you said, most freelancers find themselves in a situation where they're not looking for work unless they desperately need it. So they go through these like feast and famine cycles. And uh, yeah. yeah, that can be quite daunting for like freelancers when when you find yourself in that situation, especially if you're a freelancer that doesn't take too much care in terms of monitoring your finances and your cash flow, and you can find yourself in moments where, oh, damn, I haven't got any money coming in this month. Like my last contract has just ended. I'm not going to have the next contract for another 30 days because I know how long it takes to like go through like the sign up process and mm -hmm. start to go through these panics. So, yeah, it's so much better to just dedicate that time and have the discipline to actually go through that client acquisition process even when you are busy and it doesn't feel like you need to do that at the moment but yeah you definitely definitely do um have you got any like quick tips or um advice for people in that moment like when you're rock solid busy with clients like how do you find and manage um in in what even is the most efficient way in that period to do outreach yeah, I I think that everybody's going to be a little bit different in how they will actually do it. What I prefer to do is first thing before I open my email and check what's going on, I'm doing I have a checklist of things like I want to reach out to three people, three peers and two clients or something like that. I change my numbers throughout the year, but uh I want to do that that kind of outreach first thing in the morning. Um Sometimes I tweet about like a networking tip is for every coffee that you have, send an email to somebody, you know, if you can have some little trigger of when I do this, I also do that. I love and that. And it's, it's, it's simple, but, um, it works and it's, it literally is just putting yourself out there and being willing to connect with people. And, um, it's, maybe this is so ingrained in me that I don't think about it too often, but it's such a there's a fine line between reaching out, trying to get work, trying to drum up work and reaching out to connect with someone. And I think that when you can genuinely just be interested in the person that that goes a long way because you never know when someone's going to need work or when 
someone might refer you or reaching out to a peer or, or, or an actual client that, uh, like it's, it feels somewhat rare, at least in the, maybe the motion design world that you send the email and someone's like, perfect. I need you tomorrow. It's always like you're planting that seed and it might take three months to three years or five years. I was talking to a client of a coaching client of mine uh, last week who said someone that he worked with on a, on a different, like maybe worked at, at a company five years ago and hasn't talked to since was like, Hey man, are you available for a project? And he's like, Whoa, good to hear from you. Uh, you know, so you never know, um, how long it's going to take for that outreach and that connection to turn into a project. If it, even if it ever does, but genuinely being interested in that person, uh, goes a long way and people can kind of feel the, like, is there desperation in this message? Uh, especially, I don't know, it's, it's desperation is a real turnoff. And so when you do your outreach and you're connecting with people, show genuine curiosity, that whole salesperson thing, like if you're willing to walk away or in a negotiation, if you're willing to walk away, you have the most power in the negotiation. And it's kind of hard to fake it when you are actually desperate, mm -hmm. but like really reach deep into that, like confidence that you have in your ability to deliver for a client and trust that that's the most important thing. That's the thing that you can lean on for your, like, I'm not desperate. I'm, I'm here to serve you. I can help you if, if this is a good fit. If not, that's great. I hope you have a great day kind of thing. Um, yeah, I, I, I can just, I've seen people's messages and I can, I've heard and felt that desperation, uh, whether it's someone emailing me or I see it on uh, social media, uh, desperation just doesn't, it doesn't work well for your, the power that you have. We all have something powerful. We're able to serve someone by creating a marketing campaign, by creating a great animation that will help them sell a product. But if you come at it from a weak place of like, I really need work. Can you please give me something, anything? I'll take anything. They're not even going to believe that you can help them. They're helping you at that point uh, if they give you something. And so coming in with, that confidence and power that you can actually help them uh, will go a long way. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they can definitely s smell like the desperation on you. And then that's when you end up getting jobs out of like pity as well. And mm -hmm. like, I feel like in those moments when like you were saying, you know, I'll do anything. I just need some work right now. I need some hours on the sheet that like can really take you off your path because they can, okay, you're a graphic designer, but can you, can you have a stab at this motion design for us? And you'd be like, yeah, sure, I'll do anything. And then you're not specializing, you're not honing down your skill, you're not getting known for that one thing. And it just, in the long-term goal of your freelance career, it's just not, yeah, it's, it's just not it. So, And there's something um, to be said about like at the beginning stages of freelancing, you might be exploring and trying to figure out what it is that you want to do more of. And so I think there's a different thing to be said about exploring and saying yes to opportunities. I think when you're starting off, it's good to say yes and try things out and know that if it's not, if it doesn't work out perfect, that's fine. Like move on. But, um, there's also a, a kind of a different stage when you've found your stride and you know what you want to do, uh, promoting that you do all the other things m will probably hinder you from the kind of growth that you'd like to see by specializing and knowing like I am excellent at this. And yeah. Um, yeah, I, I completely agree. Um, I mean, I, I think if you do want those top, top rates, then you do need to specialize. But yeah, like at the beginning of your career, 
like even just trying to figure out what you like doing, what you enjoy doing, what what skill sets like you can have and like to learn. And then also trying to figure out like what can earn you the most money because there's skills out there that pay a lot more than others and you might not be aware of that. So yeah, I am I'm a big fan of uh uh taking on those opportunities just not out of like a a place of desperation. It's more what yeah. what I've had in the past and at the start of my career is I've I've done a good job at something and then they've also asked me hey look you know you've done a fantastic job at this and it maybe it's because i've shown that i'm trustworthy i communicate well i get along with them and the team that they want me to stick around that they offer mm-hmm. they offer projects outside of my defined skill set that you know they're, they're matching it's not like they're asking me to yeah. like lay bricks or anything but um <laughs> it's something like a complementary skill and they offer you that so yeah i'm I, i'm all for um, that and recommending that to freelancers um, it, at the beginning stage of their careers, like having that exploration and working with clients and taking on these new opportunities. But yeah, just not maybe out of a place uh, of desperation. But talking again about how you, uh, you know, you approach those clients when you're not looking for work now, but you're sort of just planting the seed. How do those conversations go for you and how does that outreach look? Most of the time, like for me, I do a mixture of outreach. One thing in the motion design specific world is there is a jackhammering going on. So I don't know if that's uh, affecting the audio at this point. I can't hear anything. You're, okay, you're all good. good. <laughs> <laughs> so with with motion design, one of there's, there's kind of two paths that most motion design freelancers take, and one is working with uh, motion design studios who need an extra hand, and they those are when I work for Facebook. It's often through a studio. Um, so the big corporation goes through an ad agency who goes through uh, a studio and the studio says like, okay, we've got this big project coming in. We don't have enough staff. We want to bring in one or two freelancers or five freelancers or whatever it is for X period of time. You come in and work like at a day rate and you work for anywhere from like three days to three months maybe. Um, for me, most often that's about two weeks. So the, the outreach to the studio, they, they know what motion designers are. They know what we do. And so it's much more of a, Hey, I'm available. This is what I do. I love your work. I feel like it could be a good fit. And here's a couple of pieces of my work that I think you might be interested in checking out. If you're interested, you know, hit me up. I know you're busy, so don't worry about replying that kind of a, I want you to know that I exist, but you don't have to sell anything they they already know what you do if it's a good fit and they need you then you get a call and they go are you available uh but when it comes to outreach to potential clients that's way more of like a um you know for a motion designer might go i want to introduce myself i'm a motion designer i've seen some of your ads on youtube pre-rolls they look fantastic if you need any help with production i'm a 2d animator i can also you know start and finish a project if you need that, or I could just come in for animation and like kind of let them know what my skill set is. But it's more of a, uh, it's a different kind of relationship that you're building because you might come in and just take over an entire project versus just getting plugged in as um, somewhat of a cog in the wheel. That's a little demeaning, but that's, that's a, I've been a well paid cog in the wheel. I'm happy to do that <laughs> um, when it's the right project. But uh, yeah, intro- sometimes introducing yourself to potential clients that maybe don't have motion design in their wheelhouse 
it's a bit more of an education of, well, what could you do for me? What is, what does that mean? Motion design. And so then I have to go into the cool. Well, that just means animation. And we could do this for social ads. We could do it for a new product that you have coming out, a launch, um, you know, going into kind of the, on, on basically understanding how you can use animation in marketing. Yeah. And do you ever reach when you're, when you're speaking to these clients, do you ever have moments where you realize this client's a dead end? They're never going to hire me. They're just wasting my time. Yes, but I try not to assume that before they tell me no, if that makes sense. So something that I've learned from experience, I, I heard from a business coach, like, let them tell you no. And I'm like, it's so hard, though, when I feel like it's going to be a no. For, it's easy It's easy to go, okay, they haven't responded in, in a couple days. They're probably don't, they probably don't like me or they probably are looking for something else. But I have built a habit of really doing that follow-up and going, okay, hey, I haven't heard from you in a few days. Just wanted to touch base. Um, how are things going? When can I expect a response from you? Those kind of things. And I can't tell you how many times the person has gone, oh, man, thanks so much for checking up. Uh, got super busy. Yeah, we'd love to hire you for such and such a project. And I'm like, cool. I almost didn't re-email you because I felt like you were telling me no. I, if I had made that assumption, I wouldn't have got the work. And so I try to not assume that it's not going anywhere and stick with it until they tell me no or just literally never respond, <laughs> which yeah. does happen sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's a really good point. I think I have a different, exp- being in the field of like, of marketing, I think I have a bit of a different experience because yeah, my what I was talking about then is more that clients constantly or potential clients constantly asking for meetings and mm. constantly requiring time from you before the deal goes through. Mm. So you can be doing some networking, and you know I, I often do what you do and just you know push it out there a little bit. Hey, FYI, I'm Jacob. I exist. I do this. Here's the results I've got in the past and I can help you do this. And then some people may get in touch with me and be like, oh, that's great. We're actually running this campaign on this. What does it look like? How could you help us? And then you essentially just run into this like unpaid consultancy cycle where it's like you're trying to land the client, but at the same time you're given free consultancy, but at the same time, just that consultancy might be enough for them and they can just try and get by on that so they never have to hire you and it's just this weird sort of cycle where um in in this industry i feel like it's a bit different to you because when you're not physically animating i guess you're kind of like not on the clock whereas well i i one thing that i have done with some clients is to have a a discovery a paid discovery period where for one particular project, they were a little unsure what they needed. And they were like, hey, we have this idea. How much would that cost? And I'm like, well, the idea is kind of not solid yet. So maybe we should spend a week where you pay me X amount and I start doing some exploration. I'm sending it back to you. We're bouncing things back and forth so we can actually understand what problem we're solving and how we're going to solve it. And then I can give you a quote on how much it would cost me to produce the work. Uh, So that way I'm not just going back and forth for free, figuring out 
the problem that we're solving for them, because that is a valuable thing. Even if they decided not to go with me, I've helped them discover what it is they need help with and how someone else could potentially help them. Even if, like, cause sometimes I might not be the right fit, uh, but it's kind of two different roles. One is the yeah discovery, figuring out what it is you need. And then the, like, and on my side, like the, for the promotion design, like designing and producing that work. Um, so putting a little bit of boundary on that and actually calling it a discovery period or a discovery phase, I think is helpful. Yeah, or it's that's, that's a me. really good idea, actually. I might start implementing that. So it's just basically yeah. you get first contact with the client. You can have maybe, you know, a 15, 30 minute setup call as to like, I'm Jacob. I do this. These are the services. This is what I could offer. And then also just laying down in that meeting, you know, I know how things tend to go. And here is my, you know, setup package. Like, you know, it's just for me to guide you through and to find what you want and you know how and who needs to implement it and if that is me yeah. that is that is the person that you want to implement it then you can also hire me to do that and then it sort of saves me and other freelancers that you know hourly sort of opportunity cost because if you're in loads mm -hmm. of meetings every week loads of discovery calls and you're taking you know five hours of your time at a hundred dollars an hour you've just burned out five hundred dollars potential um, revenue for you know a client that may or may not hire you and that could also be a forcing function of them going well let's get let me get back to you let me clear we can clarify some things on our side and then we'll see if this works you know they might either say yeah let's hire you for that discovery phase or go you know what i think if we spend some time on our own we can come to you with a more clear idea and you could give us a quote on the project uh something like that because i yeah, it's it's going to force someone into do we want to pay them or can we just do this internally? And then, yeah, I don't know. I, to me, I, I don't see there being much of a downside. I think some people might be balk at it and go, oh, I don't want to pay for discovery. Mm. But then maybe I might not be a good client if they're not willing to like clarify. Yeah, <laughs> what exactly. It is they need. I, I feel like you'd be falling into weed like, out. a pretty bad client, as in like the budget's just not there. If they're, if they're holding on to the pennies too much, then it's, it's kind yeah. of an indicator that. They don't. Um, they aren't going to be a good client because the good clients are the ones that really value your time. Um, and, and obviously, you know, by accepting a deal like that, it's like an intro deal. Then they obviously do value your time, and that's a great indicator um, that they are a good client. Um, but speaking about you know clients and in the work that we do, how did you get into two D animation? Was it is it more of like a passion for you that you found out that you could earn? A lot of money through or was it something that you saw there was a lot of money into it and went into it uh nope <laughs> neither i really didn't think you could make much money with it but i i think that i came into the design world in general a bit naive uh, i went to school went to university not knowing what i wanted to do i was a bit of an undeclared major i thought maybe i wanted to do psychology or engineering my dad was an engineer computer engineer and I thought maybe that was my path. And then math got harder at a higher level. So I was like, no, that's not it. <laughs> and someone literally just said, hey, you like doodling. Why don't you try graphic design? And I was like, oh, I never thought of that. And just kind of went for it. And so I, I went down the path of doing graphic design. And before I graduated, my dad told me, 
um, you know, graphic designers like don't make much money. Right. <laughs> and I was like, what? I'd never looked into it. And he was right. Like the average graphic designer made at the time, maybe like 40 or $50,000, but more like 30 something when you get out of school. And I was like, Oh man. Okay. Dang. So then I was kind of determined to go like, how could I, you know, have a higher paying career out of this? So as soon as I graduated, I listened to the Tim Ferriss's four hour work week. And that was my first, like, ah, I could come up with an idea that makes more money than just having a job. Like I could make money on the internet. And so my brain was churning and I've read since then read, you know, 20, 30, 40 business books. And it's, it's kind of led me down the path of always looking for some kind of opportunity. And my, my path to finding motion design itself was I was a graphic designer at a software company for, well, I was at the company for eight years. And within that, I bounced around between graphic design, which was um, static stuff, stuff for websites, anything uh, like Photoshop and Illustrator related. And then I got into UI UX design, actually helping design the software that we were creating. And then I kind of switched into doing a video role. So I was interviewing clients and I realized like, oh, as I'm doing shooting video, I can put my graphics on top of the videos. So then I started learning how to animate those things onto the screen and discovered that there was a thing called motion design. And that's when I started taking a couple of online classes. And at that point was at the company for long enough where I was like, uh, this is, I could see the writing on the wall. It's my time to leave and go figure something else out. And at the time I was like, I'll go freelance until I find a full-time job. Freelance was just like a, going to be a stopgap, but I've been freelancing for eight years at this point. And it didn't start off great. Like it started off amazing in the I'm free. I have my own time and my own schedule. I don't have to go into an office. And that to me was the goal. I was like, this is amazing. I, I absolutely love this until like tax season came around and I'm like, I'm screwed. I have no <laughs> money. Um, this is really hard. And so I, my, my like freelance income kind of gradually was going up, kind of bouncing up and down as I went up and all the time going like, okay, how could I do something to not have all of this money stress? And for me, part of that was teaching online. So I was doing tutorials, writing a newsletter. I've written a newsletter since 2014. And that was a really big one for me, uh, like a blog and a newsletter. And so I've just been trying things all the time, testing things. Um, even when I, sorry, this is a, I'm a meandering path here, but while I was at my software job, I also tried like being a freelance logo designer and I was terrible. Like my logos were fine, but I knew nothing about, the, I was like selling them for a hundred dollars and taking weeks and weeks. I'm like, this is, I'm not good at this. So I stopped doing that and I tried doing freelance web design on the side, uh, even worse at that. And then I tried something that I actually really got into for a while was making leather products. I don't think I have, don't have any on me, but I used to make wallets and belts and bags and, um, I, that was loving making something with my hands for the first time in a long time. Um, and I thought maybe that will be my path out of the job. Uh, but I was not making actual profit. Uh, but I was learning lots of business. Uh, I was making lots of business mistakes and learning from them. So it was nice to have that experience on the side where it was low stakes. If I mess up with my little side business, it's not that big a deal. 
but I had learned about how to make an LLC and learned how to market and create my own branding and do fulfillment and sales and taxes. And so I was, it was, I, I appreciate the time that I spent failing in a small way so that when I went freelance, I was much more business savvy at that point and didn't make nearly the same kind of mistakes that I was making when I had those smaller side businesses. Yeah. I mean, there's one thing like trying to start a business and trying to like monetize, trying to like monetize a skill mm -hmm. and sort of enter into that freelance world. But the next thing is trying to scale it. So a lot of people do freelance gigs on the side and they may be even just introduced to the idea by someone saying, Hey, you know, you're a full-time graphic designer at Adobe or whatever. Would you mind doing a logo for me? And they go, Oh yeah, sure. Um, hundred bucks. And then, uh, then they accept it. Then they do the deal. And then they, you know, what, you know what? I don't have to go into this office every day. I can work freelance full time. And they just make that jump after you know, a couple of side gigs. And then they, you know, they fall into the real world where you have to scale this and you have to get that money every month, or otherwise that yeah. rent is not being paid. And that is a completely, <laughs> yeah. completely different world. Um, did you struggle with sort of like? You think fear was a big driver for you uh, that motivated you to be more productive, to really look at the results that you were getting and try to get more? Or were you more of like a goals driven person? I am always wondering what motivates me. <laughs> uh, I think it's a, a mixture of a lot of things. Part of it is the the drive part of the driver for me is to see what I can do. Like, can I, could I go freelance? Can I make more money? Can I get those big clients? And it's a testing of my own abilities. So I enjoy that. But when it comes, that's like big picture. It's, I think that's what drives me to want to do these things. But when it comes to the day to day, um, I'm very deadline driven. Uh, I've recognized that in myself and it's, it's one of those things where it's hard to fake that and having a real deadline. I just, I get super focused the closer the deadline gets and I, I can crush a project when I'm on a deadline, but when it's a fuzzy, whenever you can get it to me, I, I, I'm like, no, I need a deadline. Like <laughs> let's, yeah. we gotta put this on the calendar. There are consequences. If I don't hit this, that's when I perform my best. Yeah. I don't know if that yeah, fully I, I answers like your I'm question. I feel like I'm the same but... as you. And I think like, for me, if I don't, so I've got into this habit now, which I've been doing for a while, which is the night before every day, I plan a to-do list with like, even like, I've got this thing right here. It's like a, like, it's just this book here and it's got like time slots and everything. Mm, nice. And I have to put everything into it because if it's not there, if it's not written down, I just wonder, you know, I wonder yeah. from task to task so many different clients, so many different things you can do. You open mm -hmm. your emails, you see this, you get a text, you move on to that, you get an, a calendar reminder, so you move on to this task and just without it, I think at scale, like once once you've got the clients, once you've got the work, once you've got a growing business, I think it's for I don't, even maybe, I don't know for who, but for a person like me, it's impossible without that like force structure. And some days like yeah. if obviously with the freelance lifestyle and it's part of the reason why I am a freelancer. There's a lot of that uncertainty. So I might get like a ring from a mate. Hey, come to Austria tomorrow. And then I just go 
And then on 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 the comeback from that, it's like, ah, oh, damn, I didn't make my list last night. And now now that day for me is just like a little bit like here and there. I'm trying to find my focus, and it becomes like becomes sort of this game to try and like chase down productivity in in like yeah. the the most productive tasks. But yeah, for me, I think uh, this is called time boxing, which is have you yeah, ever tried it? I, the time oh boxing? yeah, uh, time boxing has been super helpful. And in fact, I just did it today with my wife because we were talking about how the last few months this summer, I guess, really has felt more wishy washy, and I haven't had as many clients because I haven't taken them on, and so I'm focusing on my students. But it, it's less, you know, so I basically we realized like, you know what, we need to go back to that and uh, got out our calendar and just like blocked everything out. So we've got this podcast interview. And after this, I'm going to do some reach out. And after that, I'm going to do lunch and then I've got another call. So it's like, yeah, super helpful to know what I've got for the day. It's amazing how a checklist can look like, oh, sure, I can do that. And then you put it on the calendar and it's like, and it, when you, the thing with me with the time boxing, there was both frustrating and just eye-opening is, and maybe you're the same when you put down like maybe a 30 minute block for X, you know, activity, and then an hour long block for this other one, I am constantly amazed. And it's amazing that I'm still amazed at this, that things take longer than I anticipate <laughs> every time. Now, sometimes it's like, Oh, I got done, got it done fast. But it's unbelievable. I don't think I've ever gone through a day without having to move things around, which I think is totally fine. Like it's, it is totally acceptable to move your calendar blocks around as your day goes and you have to, but yeah, I don't think I ever have ever hit a day out of the probably hundred days that I've done time blocking, gone through a day and been like, that was exactly as I planned. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I completely like, agree. Just I like searching agree. for that perfect day. Like maybe it'll feel amazing. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. The, <laughs> the golden day. If you ever do get there, tell me, please tell me what it feels yeah. like. Cause yeah. I, I, I like feel a, achievement pain. unlocked. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> the little Xbox sound. Yes. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, I, I mean, I feel exactly the same. I'm always like dragging stuff from like one day to the next, especially cause mm -hmm. like, it's impossible to plan the perfect day because even if I like, which it is impossible by the way, to try and like accurately mm -hmm. determine exactly how long each task is going to take. Even if you could do that, you can't predict the variables. So the things that come up in the days, like this emails come up, this massive potential client has now emailed you out of the blue and they want to meet in today and like all these things that you can't predict. So there is always that sense of like, you have to move stuff around. You have to be quite flexible with it. But I do like it in like the time box and like box system where you can just like swap it out or like move it over to the next day. The only bad habit you can get into is that there, if there is a task that you don't like that you have to do, I feel like that task is always the one that gets moved to tomorrow, to tomorrow, yep. to tomorrow. Like something like for me, it's always like doing my accounts. It's always yeah. like, oh, you know, I could do that tomorrow and then tomorrow comes and then I push that to the next one as well. So um, one thing that I've tried, one thing I've tried to combat that is having my list of three items and it's like maybe the three most important things I need to do in the day. I cannot add anything onto my list until all three are done. And then you can add three more into the list. Uh, and so that way idea. you can't skip. I mean, you can but if you follow the system, you're like, here's two things I want to do that are fun. And the third thing is like, Ugh, I don't want to do that one. But I can't move on to the next set until I finish those three. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's a nice tip, actually. What I'm doing at the moment is I'm doing something a bit different, which is if I move it for more than uh, a week, let's just say, or just like, uh, I haven't got like a set amount of days, but if I if I notice that I keep moving something out, then mm-hmm. I say to myself that I have to outsource it because I know mm. I'm not going to get it done and get it done well. So then it's like with the accounts, it's like, okay, like I have accountants that do like the submissions for me, they do all the profit and loss and all that sort of stuff, but it's just the day-to-day bookkeeping that I was doing for quite a while um, because bookkeeping is like insanely expensive for the easiest skill ever. You're just literally like inputting <laughs> a transaction into um, <laughs> like into a spreadsheet or into QuickBooks yeah. or whatever. So I'm like, I'm not paying for that. Like, it's just like, it takes me five minutes. Like I just do it. But then like, it takes you five minutes for like two weeks worth of stuff. But then when you've left it for weeks and weeks and weeks, that that time block adds up. So then I was like, you know what? Like, I'm just going to take the mental stress off me and outsource it. It's going to cost money, but then that's more time that I've got to work on client work to generate income. It's more mental clarity that I have and it's just less stress. So that's what I'm trying to do at the moment is just these things that I keep coming up repetitive uh, and I'm not doing, I'm just like, okay, enough's enough. Outsourced. Do you do much outsourcing yourself? Well, real quick, I'm fortunate enough to outsource the accounting stuff to my wife because she actually thoroughly enjoys that, which is oh, so nice. nice. You, you should, that's the gold mine. You, yeah. yeah, she her dad is a, an accountant, and she got that love of like numbers, and she can remember. I can be like, oh, I love that jacket. She's like, oh yeah, I bought this like seven years ago at Anthropology for thirty seven dollars. I'm like, <laughs> just the numbers stick in her head. She likes them. She likes keeping up with stuff. Um, well, but yeah, so as far as outsourcing for me, uh, in my, pro- it's funny before project 200 K I outsourced more. And then when I did my two project 200 K years, I did a lot less outsourcing, although I'm starting to do more of that this year, which has been nice. Uh, and I mean, it's like outsourcing, like subcontracting animators to help me on projects. Um, and I have an accountant, but I, my wife does the bookkeeping. We have an accountant that does the taxes. Honestly, that took me a while to to get the gumption to just like hire somebody to do that, which is funny because it's the thing I hate the most and dread the most and push mm-hmm. off until the last minute the most <laughs> and then always wonder, did I do it right? <laughs> so yeah. like hiring an, a tax accountant was the biggest relief ever and to just know that's taken care of. And I just yeah. i am happy to pay the fee please just yeah <laughs> yeah it's just for that more for like that weight off your shoulders oh yeah because, like it's i huge. don't know about how it is where you are but like in the uk where my uh, taxes are done is is more the if they fuck up they have to defend me as well so that's yeah. sort of like that taxation process is like i'm, I'm less worried about it less worried about yep. making a mistake because someone yep. a professional has checked over it because yep you know, you don't want to be done for like tax fraud. Like, yeah. You know, even if it is accidentally, um, it's going to be catastrophic the effect on that. So it's nice to yep. just you know get that weight off your shoulders. You don't have to think about it. You can move on and be more productive. Um, like Are there other ways that you've um, done any outsourcing for yourself? Yeah. So for me, I transitioned sort of like my freelance career into an agency, and then oh, so nice. I do like. This, it's weird the term outsourcing because now when I look at outsourcing for work anyway, so usually what happens is in the freelance world, and this is kind of 
one of the things I hate about the freelance world, because sometimes it can be hard to get stuff done, is somebody gets a client, a big client, $100 an hour, $200 an hour, whatever. They outsource that for somebody on $50 an hour. Then that person on $50 an hour outsources it to somebody on $20 an hour and so on. So then you get this client that's paying $200 an hour and somebody's doing the actual work for like 15 or 20. So it's been like trying to like, because I've always been looking at ways to scale my business, my uh, my freelance business into what I do. And I've I've always been on this journey where it's like, Okay, I start off as a freelancer, I hit my capacity, you know, up my rates and, you know, whatnot, all the tactics to increase revenue. But there still is kind of um, a ceiling to, like, the amount that you can do and the amount that you can grow. So then I turn to, like, creating a team and then, you know, stuff gets more difficult it, and, like, profit margins drop and then I go, no, I'm better at this, like, alone and I go back to the team thing. But in the past couple of years, I realized... And this is one of the reasons as well why I started this um, podcast is because like part of the team that I'm working with now, I actually encourage them to become freelancers and now they like work in this team uh, that I've created. But now I've realized it's all about trust. It's all about trusting people um, to do what they can do and working with trustworthy people. I've got mm -hmm. people that I like that are in my team that they're sort of like, as you would look at their skill level to like an hourly rate, I pay them way more than what like their supposed skill level would kind of earn. But I do that just because I know 100% that they are going to get that done. They're going to do it themselves. I'm never going to have to worry about client deadlines. I'm never going to have to worry about all this stuff because mm -hmm. they do it. And then it's just, it's just been this nightmare. So I do for, for now, this is part of the whole hundred K freelancer club. Um, platform is me giving the sort of advice on both sides because I work and hire a lot of freelancers mm. but on like I also have like almost 10 years of experience working as a freelancer yep. um so it's sort of like this both sides of the coins and there's uh yeah there's a there's a there's a lot going on with that but yeah to answer the question in short yeah I do I do a lot of uh, I do a lot of outsourcing but I'm yep. very clever to make sure that it doesn't go through that cycle of what I've said, that you outsource it to one person, they go to the next. Because right. when you look on places like Upwork.com, it's so annoying when people apply for the job. It's not even them that are trying to do it. It's also an agency. Mm -hmm. So it's like, well, that's what I tell people to do. is like, if you're applying for gigs on, on freelancer.com or Upwork, put emphasis on how you're an individual freelancer and you're doing the work yourself. Because... I would say at least, and I'm not joking, at least 50% of all gigs that you will get through are from somebody that won't be doing the work themselves. Mm. I haven't, I, I don't have much experience or any experience with Upwork or any of those, whether hiring or looking for work on there. But I've had people ask like, is that where you get your work? I'm like, no, it's, <laughs> it's way more like directly contacting and people knowing me as a person. Um, and I'm, I get the feeling and that makes sense now that you're saying that you kind of don't even know if someone's going to be doing the work themselves. And if there's like, how do you trust, how do you actually build trust in that scenario? That's hard. Um, yeah. I mean, at some point like... there's going to, yeah, yeah. Just like a, a kind of going for the lowest price. If you don't feel like if the trust is the same, you're just going to go with the, a cheaper price 
I don't know, it seems like a race to the bottom. Yeah, exactly. That's how a lot of people describe these platforms is like um is a race to the bottom because also if you're a freelancer trying to find work on them, there's also a ton of competition um from agencies, from individuals and it's, yeah. it's kind of like almost turns to like a price war because the person employing on there can see all of the prices per hour that people have put and everything. So if yeah. if somebody's got a lot of views and they're bidding you know, a low price, it's probably likely that it's going to go to them. But at the same time, like there's a, I interviewed uh, on this podcast, a girl called Amy Suto, who her podcast is coming out uh, probably in like two weeks um, after this one. Well, no, it, two weeks from right now, but like when this one goes uh-huh. live, it will it, be live. But she completely turned that vision of Upwork around for me because I was like you before where I think, Upwork's a good place to get started. It's a good place to get experience. It's low risk, as in it doesn't cost a lot of money to get clients. So it's not like you need to like invest in like advertisement or marketing or pay to go to expensive events. You can just literally look at somebody going, I need a Facebook banner and just click, I will do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's kind of a good way to like get that experience if you're, you know, you have an income, you're employed. And you're just trying to look about, you know, how business works. It's a great place to get started. And I kind of always viewed it as that and only that. But then after speaking with um, Amy and she showed me her profile and she's charging $750 an hour um, as a ghostwriter on Upwork. And those like it's verified reviews coming through. It's not like it's somebody that wanted to come on the podcast and boast about this hour. She's she made well over a quarter of a million dollars just on Upwork alone um, on this crazy, crazy hourly rate. So there are clients out there. And I think, you know, there's more information about this on on that episode of the podcast and from her. But it's more about how you position yourself, how you create Mm. that demand for yourself. Um, And yeah, so there is more to these. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I will will definitely admit that I am mostly ignorant about how anyone's using that, what that platform while, or those platforms while. So that's, that's really interesting to hear. Yeah. I mean, I always assumed it was, there was like a set path. You would go from like Upwork or freelancer.com. You would create a substantial amount of reviews for yourself there, sacrificing potential earnings to create those reviews. And then you had used that to get on the bigger platforms like TopTel, where TopTel is like a freelancing platform where they only, Mm -hmm. I think the minimum they pay out as like a hundred dollars an hour in most fields um, because they only go for like top clients, but there is, they only accept, I think it's 3% of applicants is what they accept to become a freelancer on that platform. So mm, it's kind of like yeah. an end goal of freelancing. I just assumed as far as freelance marketplaces go, like that was, um, that was the end, but yeah, it's interesting. You said, so you've never, you've never been on uh, freelance marketplaces. Nope. Is that was because you just found them too late or just heard bad things about them? Uh, I think that my freelance path was inspired by people who talked down about them and said, like, this is not the, if you really want to be successful, this is not the path. Like, you need to position yourself as an authority, not someone who's, like, on a platform, someone else's platform, build your own platform. And so I basically followed that advice of building my own platform, which is, was basically my own website and yes, using other platforms like social media, 
but um, yeah, kind of being my own person. So even when I had a course where I taught lettering animation, I, I used Teachable as a, a place to host my course, but it wasn't through LinkedIn Learning. It wasn't through uh, yeah, like Skillshare. Skillshare. Yeah. Um, and so I think a lot of people were always surprised, like, wait, it's not through Skillshare? I'm like, nope, I hosted it myself and I built out different aspects of it in a very custom built kind of way. Uh, I think this is kind of the way I prefer to do things. Is that because being a creative person, doing it yourself allows you that sort of like more room to be creative, right? A little bit. It's a, a bit of the creative and a bit of the strategy of like building a newsletter, an email list that I can control better than uh, a Twitter account because the algorithm can change. And there's not a lot that changes when you have a an email list. So kind of owning that version, uh, having a bit more control in that way. And, and the same as like, if I have all of my courses on Skillshare, they could change their, and which they did somewhat recently change their like payout model. And so you kind of have to play their game. And so you have a bit more control when you're running your own course and having your own email list versus kind of having to play the game of the algorithm or the payout formula or whatever that some platform's doing. Yeah, exactly. And I suppose that the platform can always turn around and, and ban you or put restrictions in place or, yeah. you know, like they so start there's, taking there's that. There's risks with everything. When you're, when you're building your own thing, there's risks that like you have to do everything. You have to build your own audience. You have to get them on your email list. You, you have to perform and deliver. And so you have to build even more trust because someone's, they're not like to get on Skillshare is super easy. You're like paid 20 bucks a month or whatever it is. And they have, there's a lot of confidence that's built in this platform. Like I know I'm going to get my money's worth, but when it's like Austin Saylor is selling a course, I started following him last week. Is he legit? I don't know. So like you have to build a bit more trust of your own, but you're then able to charge what you want and you have a lot more control over it. So that's, that's why I like it. Yeah. Yeah. How did you like, what is your strategy? Sorry to sort of, build that emailing list and nurture that emailing list. I've had different strategies over the years. Uh, it started off with Instagram posts and then encouraging people to, what did I do? I, I created a bunch of like a, a animated the alphabet in different, in different ways. And I collaborated with different artists and then I gave away my project files. Uh, but you had to sign up for my newsletter to get the project files for free. So I was, I basically had a giveaway. And so I was trying to give away a bunch of valuable stuff to get people on my newsletter. And I write a newsletter, uh, like a weekly newsletter about creativity or making money or whatever. Uh, now it's more specifically tailored to making more money with freelance. So I have a, what is it called? The 200,000, 200 K freelance newsletter. And I, you know, every week I send a newsletter about making more money with freelance. And so there's that incentive. Like if you want to, I, I made 200,000, if you want to learn how to make more sign up and then from there, I, whenever I run a course, which I have a course where I'm teaching freelancers how to make more money, I offer that to my newsletter first. Like, Hey, I've got 10 spots open. If you're interested, apply here. And so that's, that's how I kind of strategize my, like creating content, getting people on the email list so that I can keep providing value in a little bit more off social media, a little bit deeper way. 
and built that trust in that way. And then uh, enough people from there join my courses that help supplement my income. Yeah. I mean, email marketing is just such a fantastic tool. People nowadays think it's a bit outdated, but for me, and obviously the results that you're getting as well, it's just, it's incredible. It allows you to get that personal connection, right? So you can write deeper things than a tweet. You can really demonstrate like your skill and knowledge level by just the, like the, being able to write uncapped on, on those yeah. email lists. And there's no worries there about you getting like banned or restricted or the yeah. algorithm doesn't like this particular email so it's not going to show it to people. I think the only variable probably is how good your subject lines are to get people to open it, right? Yeah. And I don't I don't know what it is about what I'm doing, but I have a pretty decent open rate. It's like sixty average of 62% open rate on my emails. Damn, that's, yeah, that's awesome. And so like I've I've built, I've sent good emails for years and years and years, like since 2014. And so I think that that, that helps with deliverability because there, there is that aspect of things. Um, if you send too many spam sounding emails, if you have people marking them as spam, then your deliver their deliverability rates are going to go down. Um, but yeah, just like send good quality stuff to people and they're going to open it, enjoy it. And then you actually get to that point where people feel like they know you and trust you and like you. Um, yeah, I'm a huge fan of email marketing. It's, it's like my favorite way to communicate with people that are interested in hearing from me. The, like I think of Twitter and LinkedIn and Instagram as like the snack size, the little bites of value, but then I go a lot deeper in the newsletter. Yeah. I mean, your open rate there is fantastic. And I think that goes like just for some context to the listeners, like that is an incredible open rate. And if you, if you work in the marketing field and especially if you work with brands and companies, you'll see open rates of much lower than that. Some brands would even have be happy with like a 30% um, open rate. And I think this really demonstrates not, well, not only your skill level at writing that, but also the power of a personal brand. I think nowadays um, the world is moving towards like people tend to favor personal brands a lot more. Um, mm -hmm. How do you feel about that statement? A hundred percent. I see it in my own behavior. I see it in the way that uh, I will follow people who run companies in the motion design world, but I rarely follow or like or engage with their company profile. So if it's on LinkedIn, I'm like, I don't even care to follow their company. Um, it's always like the founder who I'm interested in. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's so, so true. And even, and it's like, sometimes those, those like company accounts may have like a hundred thousand followers, but their engagement rate is so much lower. Cause it's like coming from some intern question mark, yeah. like who's, who's posting this stuff. Who's coming. And so when it's the person though, it's the person who founded the company they may have only 4,000, 6,000, 8,000 followers, but their engagement rate is so much higher because it's a person and they like people, like it just feels weird. The engagement rate, like the, the engagement, I don't know how to say this, but like if you have 100,000 followers and you have two people comment on most of your tweets, that's like, yeah, it shows that people are following you for some reason, but it's definitely not to engage. They, cause you're, you don't feel like you're talking to a person. 
Yeah, and, exactly. Uh, and maybe they that, fall that's in. Just a sm- sure, like they're interested. They maybe want a discount when there's a discount that happens. Exactly. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> and the same with like a, like I sign up to, when I buy something and I start getting emails from a company that sells shorts. Yeah. I'm not, I'm, I'm only going to open those emails if like I want new shorts. And so of course my open rate, their open rate via my interaction is going to be much lower. But if I'm signing up for someone's personal insights, yeah, I'm like way more interested in opening uh, more of their emails. Yeah. And this is why I'm, I'm encouraging people at the moment is to like, not try and brand themselves as like a company name and just do it as your own name. Like be yourself and build that personal brand as a freelancer. It yields so much better results nowadays. Yeah. I, I go back and forth with like, I have my coaching clients, the, the, the clients that I'm coaching and they're freelancers and some of them are using business names and my my inclination is always to go only do that if you have a strong reason or you're really convinced that this is the way you want to go otherwise if you're if you're on the fence go with your name like build trust through who you are as a person um yeah 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 i, I see, totally I, agree I with saw, that i saw quite a good um uh, a video today which kind of illustrated the impact of that it's like these aren't the correct numbers, but it's like Apple has like 10 million followers on Instagram, and, but Tim Cook's got like 20 million and like Tesla's got like <laughs> yeah. 18 million followers on Instagram, but Elon Musk has got like 120 million. And it just goes all over all these big examples. And I think even on a much smaller level and just the level of starting out as a freelancer, um, just look at the data around you. And it does show that nowadays building a personal brand is that so much like stronger because it does feel like you're building... Um, a connection with that person and and at the end of the day you're using social media to illustrate your skill your trustworthiness and to just basically give people a bit of insight into who you are because people work with people at the end of the day they don't necessarily yeah. work with brands mm-hmm. yep well it's funny because like I, I i think a lot of freelancers go through that like how should i present myself in the world uh, is it my name? Should I do something clever? Should I, you know, come up with a name? And so when I, going back to when I did my leather products, I created a name Full Harbor, which was funny. My manager at the time at the software company, he was like, Full Harbor, that's a great name. You know, Harbor is a place of business and a Full Harbor means business is good. And I was like, oh yeah, totally. That's definitely what I was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, but I love the name cause it's like sailor is my last name. So doing something nautical with a harbor made, made a lot of sense. And then when I dropped the leather business, just stopped doing that. I actually just borrowed the name for my motion design side. When I made a membership, it was full Harbor membership and I still have full harbor.com and all of my social handles are full Harbor, but I still have my face and Austin sailor as my like display name. And I ran a poll the other week or month or something. And I said, if you ever search for me on social media, do you search for Austin Sailor or Full Harbor? And it was like five or six percent said Full Harbor, and ninety-five percent said they search for Austin Sailor. I'm like, there you go. Like, yeah, <laughs> that's <laughs> like people are like have known me for years, have followed me for years, and they're still like, wait, what's Full Harbor? I'm like, yep. The the person is what matters. 
Yeah, exactly. Even think about it like on an individual level, like when you try and search for your friends on Instagram, you don't search their like crazy tag or whatever it is. You just search for their name, don't you? And it's the same as working with a person. Yep. And it's, uh, I have several friends that I search on a semi-regular basis because I'm like, oh yeah, I wanted to show a friend this post. And I'm like, well, I can't find them because they use their initials and then a weird thing. Oh, like, yeah. And I'm like, using your your real full name is such a powerful <laughs> thing to be, like just for findability. And I'm like, I'm looking for you intentionally and I cannot find you. How do I find you? I know your yeah, name. Exactly. Like that, that shouldn't be the case. You're definitely going to have issues. If, they, if people can't find you searching your own name, then you've mm -hmm. got some issues that you need to sort out. That's but, something yeah. I've told people is like for motion designers, if you type, like go into an incognito search and type your name plus motion design. And if you're not the first thing, like you need to work on some SEO, like <laughs> uh, start putting yeah. more content from your website, make a blog, do something so that you are findable on the internet. Yeah, exactly. Because realistically, how many like graphic designers or motion designers are there with your exact name? Probably yeah. not a lot, if not any. So you should definitely become a number one for that search criteria. Yeah, if you're not, then that's, yeah, that's an issue. <laughs> yeah. Or an indication of an issue, yeah. <laughs> exactly. We did a, I did a podcast, um, the, the last one actually was um, with a search engine optimization specialist, Faith, as well. So there's some good little nice. tips uh, in that one. I'll have but, to go listen to that. Yeah, it's, um, these will be coming out uh, pretty soon. Um, but obviously it's a bit... It's always a podcast is hard to say because like we're recording this one, but I don't know yeah. what the date is that this is going to go out in. Yeah. But, but yeah. you're talking, I'll, I'll, I'll send it over to you. We are speaking now. This will go out live later, which will then mean that when you're telling me later, it means in the past time is super weird with podcasts. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I should, for the audience, I'm telling you to go back a couple of episodes. And then yeah. for you, I'm telling you to wait, <laughs> wait yes. for a couple of weeks because it's <laughs> exactly. not out yet. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The time travelers inside of a, inside of a podcast. But, yes. um, I want to, I can see we've, we, we've racked up like, uh, over an hour. Uh, oh, nice. Yeah. Um, um, so I, I just want to say, um, I don't want to take, I'll be wary of how much time I'm taking for you today. Um, but I want to say a massive thank you, uh, for coming on the podcast. I've really enjoyed speaking to you. So like, yeah, awesome this is great. With a, a fantastic career. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm excited to check out more of your podcast episodes. Um, it was a great conversation. Yeah. Thanks. And, uh, if people want to check you out, if they want to get in contact with you, um, to learn more about, you know, your coaching and what you offer, uh, where can they go to find you? Fullharbor.com is the fastest just place to see what I'm up to. Uh, but if you're on Twitter, Instagram, um, my handle is full Harbor, or I'm sure if you search for Austin sailor, I'll pop up and then I'm on LinkedIn as well. Austin sailor. Awesome. I'll put all your links uh, in the description of the podcast as well. So if you do want a quick way to get there, just look in the uh, show notes and uh, yeah, all the links uh, will be in there too. And um, yeah, one last massive thank you for coming on today. Great to speak to you. And uh, I'm sure I'll stay in touch um, and hopefully we can get you back on the podcast one day uh, as well. But yeah, thanks for coming on. Very cool. Thank you so much. 